This is Rugged Matrix America. Welcome everybody to the show, show number 88. And we are looking at the business end of a whole bunch of playoffs this week. So we're just going to talk with the guys and uh, not worry too much about guests because we've got other stuff to talk about. And first off, Pat Clifton, you called it down in uh, uh, the, uh, on the Arkansas State St. Mary's game because I, I think Bruce and I both had St. Mary's winning that game. You called it, so congratulations because I think I think you have. Uh, if we're keeping track, you're in the lead. Well, I think I technically called Arkansas State to beat Utah because I called for Utah to beat St. Mary's, <laughs> but I will take that I got the only two teams. I was the only guy to get the two teams in the final. In the final, I'll take that. And Bruce McLean, you were down in Marietta, Georgia, actually, as was Pat, and um, won the game. And, and New York Athletic Club is first is in first place, so that was a good weekend for you. Yeah, it was good. Got to see Pat down in Marietta. Uh, got a ride back to the airport without Al Caravelli. So, yeah, it was all right. Good weekend. It was fun. And a lot of good rugby. Very impressed with what I saw. You know, it was a good weekend for Life University, even though they lost two games. I think that, uh, um, you know, they, they showed themselves well in a lot of ways. Um, good for them. It's got a, kind of a tough way to uh, have a big showcase weekend. But, you know, that's what happens when you have big games. And and big games is what, what this is all about. It was a big weekend for Life University. They were hosting the the D1A semifinal. We'll get into that in a minute. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the other game that they played. Uh, uh, they hosted New York Athletic Club. Nyack won that game to clinch first place. All the way across the country, uh, several hours later, really, uh, Old Puget Sound beat uh, the Denver Barbarians to clinch first place in the West. Neither of these things is actually a big shocker because we kind of knew it was going to go. But... Uh, New York Athletic Club, you guys, you guys were both there. I wasn't. Um, I'll tell you the impression I was getting is basically that Nyack has the ability to put a stranglehold on the game, has the ability when when things are working it, that they win ball, the other guys don't get any ball, and they're skilled enough to make that produce points for them. Pat, uh, it, it, would that would that be accurate? That's what I saw, and to be honest with you, um, it could have been a lot worse. Because Nyack was something like six knocks in the first half, um, plus a, a forward pass, several of which were inside the attacking 22. I mean, if they would have taken care of the ball a little bit better when they had it in hand, they could have been, you know, beaten life even worse. But yeah, when Bruce says his team has no wheels, he's probably right. Um, doesn't have much speed uh, on the wing or in the back three at all. Um, but very consistent backline players. You know what you're going to get. They play solid defense, and the forwards are fantastic. He's right when he says Brian Doyle's playing great. He is. Um, Lou Stanfield was the man of the match, in my opinion, and you've got Mr. Consistent and, you know, Mike Petrie, um, serving the ball to whoever wants it. And you got Neil McMillan's a very good, uh, flanker, the former Ulster flanker. You got a good number eight and Alistair McFarlane. Um, it's a very solid, solid group. That's very good and tight and, uh, can suffocate you on defense. Cause that's what they did. The, I mean, the only time life ever scored it through is when Tui Osborne just made a beautiful, you know, individual effort other than that Nyack was was very suffocating on defense so Bruce is this team as good as uh 2010 2008 
we're different. That's for sure. I, I think that we're probably a, a more complete team in in terms of that, and we have we have a bit more skill. Uh, we probably don't have you know we don't have the the Troy Hall type wheels or the Sean Rafferty type wheels or the Luke Milton boot or the Aiden Mara type wheels, but it's it's a different team. One of the things that we are seeing is that Mike Petrie's taking the game into his hands a lot more. He's got a lot of license to be able to play his game and and keep the tempo up, and that's something that we work on incessantly. And um, then you look at a guy like James Denise, who's really creates a lot of go forward for us along with Connor Coyne. And then you see, Pete, you know, our, our big name players play big games. I, the, the thing about this team that's good is that our top players tend to come to play in big games. You know, Mike Petrie plays well. Louis Stanfield has not had a game like that for us yet. It was, he was outstanding. I mean, he was the man of the match. Was it wasn't even close. Um, Brian Doyle played a consistent, fantastic game. And then, and then you look at, the, actually, the play that, that Pat's talking about, about, we took the opening kickoff and then went through, we, we kicked off and we took it and then we went through about five or six phases, got down to the life two-yard line, coughed it up till we busts a tackle, till he goes to the 40, till he chips it, till he chips it to Tui. Who he gets it, runs another 20, <laughs> feeds Von Rensburg, and he scores. It was unbelievable. And it was really, uh, you know, life with Benny Mattiolona and, and, and Tui Osborne and, and As McMaster in the midfield are very difficult to stop. We we did stop them, although they did. The, the thing is, like, when you have a team like ours where we don't have a, a whole lot of speed, we tend to do things eight to ten yards at a time. And when you play a team like life that is extremely explosive, they can do things 50 and 60 yards at a time, which is what they did. And, and it was, it was almost like a polar opposite of, of the, the, the next game. And, and they just, you know, we, we were able to strangle them a little bit and we were able to strangle a little bit of the life out of them. But man, when they get going, they are tough to stop. I and mean, they kept themselves in the game through when they get into fractured play, it is tough to play against. Okay, when you, so so yeah. let's talk about a team that that also has a scrum half who who can can punish people by uh, keeping the game up tempo and uh, also can score uh, conversely can score from eighty meters, and that's a uh, Opuget Sound who who beat uh, Denver thirty seven to twelve, and thirty seven points was actually uh, seven tries. They only converted one, so. If they had gotten the conversions going, they would have topped 40 quite easily. Emosi uh, uh, Vicago, the um, Fijian Sevens former star, is is the scrum half who, you know, if you, if you give him one step on a quick tap, you've got problems. Philly uh, Batitu scored two tries for them, uh, one on a really nice weak side break up the middle. Uh, sort of an orchestrated play, which was which was pretty impressive to see, um, and uh, the the guy who really came through this past week was Willie Rasalika. Uh, haven't really seen an awful lot of him um, really taking control of the game, but he made several big plays, and the the one I loved was just you know it was a switch move, it's scissor move. He goes up uh, through the gap, 
He's got support on his right. Now, this is this. is he's got a bunch of backs. This is a fast team. The guy he passes to is Aaron Fry, the lock, and, and Fry goes 30 meters and scores. Uh, so they've, they've got people all over the place who can do the job. The question is, and, and I don't know, Pat, maybe you want to chime in on this one. How do they match up? If the, if these if these are the two teams that play and they probably should play for the final, how do they match up? Well, I think they're going to match up a lot, like um, the two teams we're going to talk about in a little bit, Life and BYU. I think that uh, in this case, uh, Nyack is uh, BYU and 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 Old Puget Sound is Life. I don't think it's a straight comparison, um, but it, it, it makes somewhat sense. I mean, there's a lot of speed, obviously, for Old Puget Sound on the wing. Miles Craigwell, Philly Batitu. Um, all the guys that you mentioned, and then they have some playmakers in the back line elsewhere, like Amosi Bukago and whatnot. Um, and imagine, you know, Mike Palafal is going to be playing for them. Uh, and, and you add in maybe Andrew Duratalo elsewhere. Right. Too. And I, sh- I should, I, I should I, mention that, uh, Pate Tua did not play against Denver this past weekend. So that's another guy. Yeah. Too. I add in Pate too. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, they, their extreme strength is their backs. Nyack's extreme strength is their forwards. Now is there any way to confuse that? I think that, uh, Old Puget Sound's going to have the matchup, the better the better player pretty much, uh, 10 through 15. And I think Nyack, with maybe the exception of uh, of Duratalo, if he's playing eight, will have the uh, uh, advantage one through eight. So I think it's going to be a fantastic matchup. It's going to be, can the AC starve Old Puget Sound of the ball? Can they dominate? In the, can they steal enough lineouts, steal enough scrums, and take the air out of the ball? I think if they can, then they've got a really good chance of winning. So, so Bruce, it, it seems to me one of the things that really, if these two teams play, uh, one of the things that really comes down to uh, will be defense in the back line for Nyack. And I've, uh, you know, we've seen. I, I remember what was it, the 2005 final against uh, Belmont Shore. Belmont Shore was, you know, again, uh, we've we've touched on this a little bit uh, before, but Belmont Shore was on paper the better team had uh, Alex Hamill, their winger, who still holds, I believe, the record for most tries uh, in league play. Although, you know, Philly Petitu, I don't know how many tries he scored this year. seems like a lot. Um, But you shut, for the most part, you shut them down. I remember Hamill in that game in 2005 uh, went 60 meters several times. He, He never scored, though. He was always hauled down. What is it about New York Athletic Club that they're able to somehow hold down the fort that way. This actually <laughs> reminds me of a funny story that after that game, the guy who he skinned <laughs> for those things said he was so proud of the way he played defense and, <laughs> and all the guys on the team just started calling him Davy defense because <laughs> <laughs> he got skinned by Hamill so many times. But um, it, it actually, we, we practice it. We, and we practice it in overload situations, and and when we're playing, we play a lot in practice. And when we're playing, we don't. We make sure that the attack and defense are either in the goal zone or just next to it within five seconds. And also, anytime a team scores, we try to force them to the outside so that they have to score it in the corner and have a tough conversion. So, we actually do practice the scramble defense and we do practice hustling back and, you know, whether or not they make the stop, it's more important that they make the effort and that culturally within the team that everybody understands that we never give up. 
because anything can happen. A guy can trip on the grass. He can pull a hamstring. A lot of stupid things can happen. He can throw an errant pass, and you can get lucky. And if you chase them all down, eventually you can get lucky every once in a while. And in high-pressure games, people tend to do silly things because they either don't believe in themselves or they, they, they think that they have to do something else or they, they second-guess. So we actually do practice those types of things and try to put the team under pressure without stress so that when they go into a game with stress, that it's just second nature. You know- and, you know, so that being said, first off, we still have to play life in a semifinal. Yes, and they have to play and, Golden Gate. Not ex- Neither one a, of them is a, yeah. a done deal. Inner coach speak here. Golden Gate has yeah. won a couple of national championships. They didn't do that by mistake. And... And and life, up until this year, the AC's never beaten life. So, you know, and and life actually matches up okay against us. It's again, it's a matter of can we can we starve them a possession or can we keep possession of the ball for long periods of time? If we can, we'll, we'll come out on top. Blah blah blah. I think Nyack's going to win, and uh, Old Puget Sound probably will win against Golden Gate. Although I could see a, a, a shakeup there. Funny thing about we we talk about defense versus offense. Nyack's uh, average uh, score is forty to fourteen. Old Puget Sound's average score is forty nine to eighteen. So yes, it's. Uh, uh, that indicates to me Nyack's offense is a little bit better than we talk about because we're talking about the defense, and obviously Sound can also defend as well because they don't keep the ball very long. Remember, when they get the ball, they, they, it seems it only takes them a couple of minutes to score, so they actually do have uh, some some good defenders there. One of the things, actually, we did this, we actually discussed this at practice tonight, and you know, I, I told them, I said, look, we could play direct, and you can go eight or ten yards at a clip and go 8, 10 yards, 8, 10 yards, 8, 10 yards, pick and go, pick and go, score. And I was like, it's okay to do that. And it's very effective. And if you continue to do it for 80 minutes, instead of pumping 40 and 42 or 43 or whatever we're pumping on teams, that you can pump 60 on them. And if we can get ourselves to a position where we can play the game we know that we should be playing for 80 minutes, then we could be a very potent offensive force. The fact of the matter is, right now, we're trying to do things a little bit the easy way and trying to take the easy way out, looking for cheesy offloads and looking for some silly stuff or maybe forcing the ball wide when we shouldn't. And and that, that does cause us errors. And that's just a mental thing that we have to deal with. Can we play within ourselves for 80 minutes without getting bored? It's a boring way to play. And Pat can tell you, it's not the most exciting thing in the world to watch a bunch of guys tramming in and making a train wreck and gaining five or six to ten yards every time. I think there's a lot to enjoy in that. But you, you know, where we get stuck in the the whole rugby thing about it's got to be pretty, it's got to be enjoyable, you know, it's got to be a spectacle too. When we watch football, very rarely does somebody say, uh, you know, they 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 won sixteen to seven, but it was dull. They, they what? I tell you that outside all... of SEC country, they talk about that because watching SEC football okay. is like watching paint dry. Somebody can <laughs> win six to three; <laughs> it's right. horrible. So it 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 looks like Nyack, Opiusit Sound. We we know that there are speed bumps out there, but it looks like those two, and it will be a, a great game. Very excited to see that, and um, we'll we'll try. You know what we're gonna do? And it just came to me. We're gonna we. 
I know it's going to be taped and probably webcast. We're going to try and make sure that it is always available, um, whether rugbymag.com has to get something posted or something, but make sure that everybody can see that game uh, more than once. Uh, and a game, another game you should see more than once, and we'll be right back to talk about this and the D1A semifinals, BYU versus Life. That was a game that uh, is worth remembering. We'll be right back after this. Hey, this is Ben Knight with the University of Wisconsin men's rugby team. Come see us play some sevens at the USA Sevens Collegiate Rugby Championships in Philadelphia on June 2nd and 3rd. To purchase tickets, go to usa7scrc.com. Go Badgers. So we're back on Rugged Matrix America, and don't forget to go to the iTunes store to check out well, where you can get the Rugged Matrix America shows, the past shows, and also the Rugged Matrix regular international shows as well. And always check on RugbyMag.com. And we're back talking about now the D1A semifinals. And we had two really compelling final semifinals this past weekend. Life against BYU. Uh, I, I think it went the way most people thought it was going to be, was that BYU won, but it was the hardest game they played. And Pat Clifton, you were there. You were doing color commentary. Very nice, by the way. And you survived because you were on that scaffolding. But um, how close was it f- for life? How, how um, you know, should are they kicking themselves? Are they thinking they should have won that? What? Yeah, I think that they probably are. Um, it, it, they had two bad errors that everybody's going to point to. They had um, the interception try. Joe Kelly threw straight to Dylan Luba, who ran it straight in. It wasn't even... I mean, the, he was there the entire time. It was just a bad, a poor pass. One small lapse in uh, judgment. And then later in the half, they had uh, a pass uh, go straight into the hands of Darian Woodson, uh, the outside center, and, and fall straight to the ground. And Paul Lasica was about able to scoop it up and score. And that was, that was really the big difference. Those were two gimme tries that life gave BYU in the first half that they are going to regret. They're going to watch the tape and regret. Um, I do think that that the second one was a little more earned. I think that uh, perhaps Woodson was a little, uh, he was hearing the footsteps coming and that the intimidation um, of BYU's uh, backs was a factor in his knock on. Um, I think that, so I think BYU did earn that a little bit, but yeah, I think they're kicking themselves for those two reasons, but also because uh, you know, there was a lot of points left on the board and uh, Joe Cowley is a very good player. I know Dan Payne is about as high on Joe Cowley as he's ever been on any player that I've ever talked to him about. Alex, I know you like him a lot. He's usually a really, really good goal kicker. And, um, but I, he left something like, and I, it was at least 10 points. I want to say it was 12 or 15 points. It was at least 10 points on the board um, through kicks. They weren't easy kicks, but anytime you leave that many points on the board and kicks, um, it's something that you have to consider. Um, so I think that life is uh, kicking themselves a bit. And they had, you know, they had some possession at the very end of the game in the last 10 minutes to potentially take it over. So, yeah, I think that they are. They are kicking themselves. I think it was a close game because I think life played for most of the game the better rugby. They just had the two big laps in judgments. Um, in judgment, they they missed some kicks, and uh, but I think all in all, life actually played the better game on the day and just lost, which happens. They played a little bit more of the rugby. Uh, you know, it's I'm sort of on this uh, this bit a little bit. Uh, when it comes up, I don't think an interception try is, is luck. And sometimes people can sit there and say they didn't earn it, but um, 
it really did seem like life had the I, I don't know what the numbers life had the majority of possession um it was the last five ten meters putting it away that was um that was a problem and credit to BYU for sticking it out and remember that uh Ray Forrester went off with an injury Mikey Sua got sinbin uh two central figures in in we talked about the, you know the battle of the round of scrum and and they were without those guys they were without Forrester for a good portion of the game um they they were under some pressure and teams that win games easily that are under pressure can often wilt under that pressure and I don't think BYU wilted under the pressure. And I think part of that is that's a very senior laden team. I mean, six all Americans, senior all Americans are on that team. Those guys have played in the national championship games. I mean, they've played in those playoff games. So I think that's that definitely factored into it as a part of it. But just as much as an intercept is earned by Dylan Lou because he was in the right place at the right time it was a ball hawk, um, you earn your yellow cards too. So it's not like Mike Stewart <laughs> just lost no, the yellow true. card no, lottery no, and had to true. sit out for ten minutes. He earned it. Life definitely played the better rugby game, but at the end of the day, you see why BYU was so good. Is they got outplayed, but they didn't get outscored. And and not only did they get outplayed, they scored twenty six points in the process of getting outplayed. In the second half, they they did kind of melt a little bit in the heat, and and weren't as dynamic, and 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 life kind of tightened up some of the mistakes, but. When you gave them a half a sniff, they were gone. And and that's what good teams do. And that's why they're a great team. On the other hand, you know, one of the things that Mike Tolkien has always said about Highland teams was that you could play really well against them, but they were brutally difficult to score against. And and there were times when you would see, say, a Xavier team play a Highland team and they would play well. They couldn't score. It's very similar with BYU. Life spent an enormous amount of time inside the BYU 22. It came away Huge. with nothing. It came away with donuts. And that is also a hallmark of a great team. A great team can, can counter pressure with pressure, and they are a great team. And life is a great team, too, that's returning, I believe, everybody. And I'll tell you that from my perspective, on that field, I saw Ryan Roundy, who I think should definitely be seriously considered in the Eagle Pool. Um, I, the 13 from, from BYU was just an absolute horse. I, he should be considered. I don't know if he can be. I think he's going to get a football scholarship. And then the other two guys who I thought were Eagle caliber, at least in, in, in the conversation, where Cam Dolan was fantastic aerially in the lineup. He was absolutely fantastic. And and I thought that uh I thought Joe Cowley. I thought Joe Cowley's kicking game out of hand, Joe Cowley's decision making outside of of that errant play was uh was fantastic. So I saw four players that that I think definitely belong in the Eagles. Um I think Davies is an excellent player. I, I think he needs a little bit more seasoning. But um, and 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 I I probably would got a more of a respect for Dylan Luba, and I will say that I thought that maybe the BYU lineout would be a big issue after seeing the Cal game last year, but BYU's lineout has vastly improved as well, and uh, 
they they were two very very good rugby teams I, and i remember we cuz they they started their game about 10 minutes after we ended and our guys walked off the field and we were right in right at the BYU sideline right at the BYU tent and our guys came off like holy cow those guys are huge they're like they're like these guys are, these are. guys are huge and they're older than us and 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 it wasn't and i'm not saying that in the sense of the you know the the naysayers of of rugby cuz We've already discussed what Ryan Roundy and I've discussed what Blake Burdett told me about missions and all that. But they were a very, very big, very, very fit, very, very experienced team. My team happens to be very young. We we have a lot of guys who are 22 years old. So we probably have six 22-year-olds. So I, they are, they're young anyway. But they, when they looked over, they're like, holy cannoli. They, they, were, they were a big, fit, strong team and and i'll tell you life came out gave them every bit of it it was a fantastic atmosphere i had an amazing time and i thought that those teams played their guts out and they gave everybody an exciting a very exciting rugby game and it was that really went down to the wire it was completely down to the wire and you didn't know what was going to happen and even at the very end when life got that turnover and breakaway and then they tried to force it, but man, what a play! What what a what what just what a game! It was Pat, you called it. It was a fantastic game. Yeah, it was a great game, and this is one thing I got to say. And Alex, you kind of called me out for sounding like a homer on the on the webcast, but I, I will say that it, there was not a lot of policing of the breakdown, and 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 I'm not saying that it was uh, heavily favored one way or the other, but I will say that when you have a game where the breakdown is more of a free for all than than, um, you know, tightly policed, as we often see nowadays, where you see a lot of precedent setting early on from referees, that it's going to favor the bigger, more physical team. And I think that you saw some of that on Saturday. And I'm not saying that life got robbed. I'm not saying that it was the wrong call. I'm just saying that nowadays you seem to see referees try to set these precedents and set their own rules. And you hear coaches talk about having to read the ref and figure out the ref for the first 20 minutes of the game. Well, that didn't really happen Saturday. They, you know, the rules were kind of, um, you know, I find it hard to believe that they were never broken by either side, but there weren't a whole lot of breakdown penalties. Um, and I think that that was a factor in the game. But at the end of the day, I think that even if BYU was getting pinged for penalties early on, they would have, um, you know, figured it out. As, we, as I just said, a lot of coaches talk about, they would have read it and, and changed their game accordingly if they needed to. But no, it was it was a fantastic game, one for the ages, and you saw, an up-and-coming team playing a truly seasoned, top-notch, senior-laden team. I don't know that it necessarily favors the bigger team. I, I think that it's, it's given the fact, given I'll, I'll assume that they're both equally fit, or and and life was probably at a little bit more fitness, and BYU probably had a little bit more strength. I think that it, it favors the experienced team. And I think that BYU having been through as much as we say BYU hasn't played any tough games this season, and 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 I guess they did play when they played some of the men's teams that might have had some difficult games. I don't know how difficult they were, who, who BYU put out there, who the men's teams. But BYU has played Cal in the final several times. So the, the, these guys have been through that ringer. I mean, you're talking about Dylan Luba, Sean Davies, Ryan Roundy. They're, uh, you know, four or five national final games under their belts. These guys know what it takes, and they understand that in those situations, they know what they can get away with. And also, because BYU was such a difficult team to score on, 
they're almost not afraid to have to back 10. You know, like, all right, run it on us. We'll still tackle you. And and that, I think that they, they do have a sense of calm in how they play. Like, even when life was pressuring them, it was like, calm, Dylan Luba scores. Calm, I forgot the guy's name, Lasiki or something. Uh, Paul Lasiki, yeah. Yeah, it was just, they... They're calm. They're they they're not intimidated by being on defense, and they're calm about it. And they can go through multiple phases of it, and and that's what really good teams can do, and 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 that's where teams start to get. They most teams start to freak out when they have to do a lot of phases of defense. Enough of my coach talk. The uh, the other aspect of this is that uh, this is a, a large chunk of this team of the guys who won the national championship against Cal in 2009. So great point from Bruce. But uh, on the other side of things, talking about referees and stuff like that, um, Ar- Arkansas State goes to St. Mary's and wins there. And they win 31-17, and it's a it's a game that St. Mary's at home is leading 17-12. When uh, they give up a try, uh, they just sort of miss some tackles, some poor tackling. Um, what what Tim O'Brien said to me after the game, uh, the St. Mary's coach, was that he felt they had lost the referee. He was unhappy with the behavior on the sidelines. Johnny Everett. The assistant coach for St. Mary's got dismissed from the from the enclosure. I'm not going to say it was Everett's fault. I'm not going to say it's the referee's fault. Although I, I my my feeling is it, to to dismiss a coach from an enclosure has got to be pretty darn egregious, and I just can't imagine what that would be. But um, you know, it, it's an interesting thing I for know. the for for the well, it's an interesting thing for a coach to say not. The referee got it wrong, or the referee screwed us, whatever it is. But the referee saying, "We lost the referee. We lost how to handle what he was calling, and that was one of the reasons they lost." Well, I know what happened because I spoke to Johnny today, okay. but uh, and I spoke to Tim. What happened was there was something something going on with the number four, or number five ref, and Tim Luscombe was refereeing the game. Tim O'Brien is the coach of St. Mary's. And Johnny said, Tim, you got to check out what's going on with the subs. Tim Luscombe took it as Johnny Everett saying something to Tim Luscombe when he was actually talking to Tim O'Brien. And everybody said, everybody said, who was there, said it was... It was not, that shouldn't have been how it went down. And it was an unfortunate situation. Um, Now, look, there's three sides to every story, side A, side B, and the truth. So, and I haven't spoken to Tim Luscombe, but the, look, it happened. And and St. Mary's was up at home by a try and gave up three tries. National champions don't give up three tries at home late in the second half. Just don't do it. Can't do it. You don't win that way. And Arkansas State, fair play. Arkansas State showed that they are an excellent team. And Pat's been, you know, speaking the, you know, about Arkansas State being excellent for the last two years. As long as Pat's been on the show, he's been espousing the talent of Arkansas State. He backed it with his picks, and he was correct. 
Arkansas State, you know, you're talking, you can say we could talk about it, whatever we want to say. At the end of the day, you're up by a try at home with 20 minutes to go in the game. You know, you shouldn't lose by two tries. Got to close and that, it out. Well, and that's what happened then. So that shows how good Arkansas State is. And that show, you know, the one thing that really was awesome, and I, I don't know who said it to me, um, was that all four teams in the final four could have won their game. That's awesome. Last year, it was only Cal and BYU. Nobody else could have won. Now there's four. Maybe next year, there'll be eight or six. And maybe some of the quarterfinal matches will be more hard fought than they were this year. And I think that that's a really good thing for rugby. We're seeing, we're seeing teams, it's, it's, it's not that the, the, the bar is getting lower, is that other teams are raising the bar higher. And I know Pat wants to discuss this later, but other teams are raising the bar higher. And, and what I saw in the game that I saw, I didn't see the BYU, sorry, I didn't see the uh, St. Mary's Arkansas State game. But what I saw in the BYU Life game was fantastic brand of college rugby that I thoroughly enjoyed being at. And I was glad that I was on the sidelines and I was there live. I would not have wanted to watch that on videotape. I would have wanted to watch that live and it was awesome. And I think that that's a great thing for college rugby. I don't know if you guys agree or not. It was, it, you know what? It was pretty good on webcast too. It was pretty compelling. And, you know, I've, I've been to the finals where, you know, some some of the finals that have been played the last couple of years have been really tense and exciting games. And and this was uh, this was right up there. OK, so we've got a great matchup, I hope, coming up. And, and, and you know, <laughs> life pushed BYU to within six points. Uh, Arkansas State did lose twice to life, but uh, uh, there's a lot of argument that they're very, very close. And Arkansas State, supremely well coached, uh, ready and confident. So this is going to be a great game. It is in BYU's backyard uh, in Sandy, Utah at Rio Tinto Stadium. Clearly, and I, I, I talked to Matt Huckabee about this, and I said, you've got to be excited about going to the final. He said, absolutely, we're excited. He said, you know, playing in a big, full stadium. And he said, yeah, that's going to be really exciting. But remember, it's a big, full stadium with everyone cheering against us. So I, I don't know how that's going to be, but, um, you know, what do we see? What do we see coming from this game? I think it's, you know, I, for one, I did pick BYU to win it. I'm sticking with that prediction, but. Arkansas State gave BYU a great game last year in the D1A playoffs. I think, you know, Arkansas State essentially got the same personnel on the field. And I, you guys know, I think extremely highly of Arkansas State. I think that a lot of Arkansas State's strengths um, are similar to that of life. I think they have a lot of speed on the wing and a lot of reserve speed on the wing. I think Arkansas State can go five deep in their back three uh, and not lose much in the terms of pace. I think they've got a deeper stable of speed than any team in the country. And I would say I would definitely, I back that a hundred percent. So I think that they, they, they've got the speed on the edge. Can they win enough ball? It's just, it's kind of like the life matchup. Can they win enough ball? Um, Arkansas state, I don't think is as good in the line out as life is when life actually has Cam Dolan and Paul Bester. Um, but can they, can they steal the line outs that life was able to steal? Um, can they hold up in the scrum as well as life did? And I think they can. And um, are they going to have some guys step up and make, you know, have big time performances and, and have some of their good guys not, um, you know, have an off day. 
Uh, I think that if they do that, they've got a really good chance. And, and unlike life, Arkansas State is also very senior laden. Uh, you know, Donnie Swanepoel has been around forever. Uh, Nardis Vessels has been a- around forever. Um, Sean Potgeter has been around forever. So I think that they are going to have that playoff experience, big game experience that perhaps life did not. Um, so I think this is almost like a life versus uh, BYU part two. Um, and it's going to be interesting. I think where Arkansas State goofs up a little bit is they, especially against life, they forgot to play rugby on BYU's end. They didn't play the territorial game as as good as life does. Um, and, and Joe Cowley is a big part of that because his boot, out of hand, as Bruce was talking about, is very good, even when it's not great from the tee sometimes. So uh, can they manage to, to stay consistent with that and, and not make some of the big mistakes? And I think if they can, this could – I mean – Obviously, BYU is a favorite, but I wouldn't be shocked to see Arkansas State win. I really wouldn't, especially got, Ray. You know, they've also got the wide bodies. I just, I just think of Arkansas State has just been being just bigger guys, not necessarily height, but but they just take that punishment. And I think it's going to be a very punishing, very physical final. The finals have not been high scoring, not since what, 2006, 2007, where we saw kind of a blowout. But for the most part, the last few years, when it's Cal by BYU, it's been one or two tries on either side and and really, really tense, goal-kicking, critical. But physicality is just enormous on, on each of the games. And I, and I would expect it to be the same way this time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that it's going to be... I think it's going to be very difficult for Arkansas State to pull this one off. Um, you know, I had to go to New York, which is a, a pretty good, pretty good ride. They had to go out to California, which is a pretty good ride. And then they got to, then they got to go to Utah, and then they got to play at altitude in BYU's backyard. Um, Alex, you were there last year. We were together in the press box, and you know that that is an extremely partisan stadium. That is going to be. BYU colors, BYU jerseys, BYU. I mean, it is BYU through and through. And I also think that because life gave BYU a serious scare, that there's going to be a different pace and a different intensity to the beginning of that game. And I think that some of those players who maybe um, maybe weren't at full strength or maybe weren't playing as hard in that second half and had to turn turn it back on late in the second half when, when life was threatening. I think that uh, BYU is, is probably going to try to overwhelm them early. And if if Arkansas State can weather that storm, they can do well. Um, but I also think that I would be looking for more of a game out of uh, – I'd be looking for more of a game out of, out of Sean Davies – and probably a little bit more of a game out of Dylan Luba. And if they do that, you will see, I think, a different, I think a different outcome in BYU. And remember also, this is a, this is a partisan crowd that is looking for a BYU win, uh, you know, a, a championship. BYU did win a championship, but they won it in Stanford. These, these people, these fans want to see them win on home soil and, uh, and they're going to be behind them. It will be an intimidating place for Arkansas state. I think I'd have to go with BYU as well. Let me but I'm looking about forward a couple of the, a couple of the things. Cause a, I, I think that the advantage, especially in college rugby for home field is the travel. 
I think that's what BYU's big advantage is, is the fact that you're having Arkansas State go to some kind of altitude here into Utah and playing weather they're not used to, and the travel is obviously a different piece of it. I don't think the advantage is the crowd. And I, you're talking like 10, 12,000 max that are going to be there, and it's going to be very BYU partisan. But if I'm Arkansas State, I almost like am feeding off of that. I don't know that, that that's that big of a difference, What the who the hell the people in the crowd are cheering for. I think the difference is the travel and, and the, the things that come along with it. But that's just me. I could be wrong on that. I've not played in that atmosphere. So that's just completely I, I think the atmosphere does help the home team. But, you know, speaking to your thing, and maybe we've got to move over to the other divisions, how about right now we 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 stand up for Arkansas State, who's won two playoff games on the road, like Bruce said, like like Pat said. They went to, to West Point. Very difficult to play there. They won there. They went to Moraga, California. Very difficult to play there. They won there. How amazing is that? And 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 they should be they should be uh, applauded for that, no matter what happens this weekend. So if we think BYU is going to win this weekend, we also have a Final Four in Division One AA, and we also have a Final Four in Division Two. Uh, Division Two first. We're going to do that, uh, and and Towson plays Salisbury in one semifinal, and Lindenwood plays Utah Valley in the other. Salisbury has won a championship before. Uh, oddly, the last time they won it was uh, against Arkansas State in Division Two final in 2004. Uh, Utah Valley has been right up there for years. Um, Lindenwood is new. It's the new varsity program. So that's it. And Towson has always been a, a decent program, a, a competitive program. So... What's going to come out of that? The thing, the the one thing here is, you know, you check and see Salisbury beat Towson in the the Mid Atlantic final, uh, thirty to twenty six. So really, seems to be kind of a toss up right there. They beat him in um, a close game in the Potomac Rugby Union final too. So they they yeah. won two close games in two finals so far. Right. So so you you probably lean Salisbury, but really it could be anyone's game. Yeah, and and they're both going to Utah to play each other, which is you know. I could see them saying, why don't we just stay home and play? But they do have a final to play. So um, I guess I'd have to lean Salisbury, but really difficult to, to lean everything on Salisbury. Yeah, I think it's going to be close. These two are bitter, bitter rivalries. Like, they do not like each other. Um, so I think that that's going to be fun for the people that are actually in the stadium at the time they play to enjoy. And hopefully a lot of people make it in, in time to, to watch that game. Um, they don't like each other at all. Um, and, uh, it's, there's not a lot. I mean, they're both very physical teams, very physical up front. Towson's probably a little bit bigger up front, um, and a little more nasty up front, but Salisbury is probably a little more skilled and seasoned in the backs. But yeah, I too would lean Salisbury. Um, uh, and then the other, the other semifinal I think is really, really intriguing because you got Utah Valley full of a bunch of guys that played for Utah and, or for Utah United and for Highland. I think the count I got from coach Clint Wilson was something I think it was eight that had played for either one of those two, which means they've played in a pretty high pressure, big game inside Rio Tinto before all those guys have. Um, and everybody, a lot of the other guys that fell at that team um, are guys that also played in the state of Utah that didn't quite make it to that game that are really relishing the chance to play inside of Rio Tinto. So uh, I think that, I, I think that if there is a team who's poised to knock off Lindenwood in this entire process, it might be Utah Valley just because they're juiced to be playing at home. They are playing at home, essentially. Um, and they've got a lot of guys who have been in these big-time games. 
And Lindenwood has a lot of really, really good players, especially Brandon Davis at fly half and Morgan Finley at fullback. Um, the Kiwi and the Aussie there, respectively, uh, are both really, really good. But have they played in this kind of atmosphere? Well, I have no idea. My guess is about every single one of the American kids that they have, which they do have quite a few of, have not played in this atmosphere. So I think that that could play into it, too. So Utah Valley has got the crowd behind them. And, and even if a couple of thousand show up on the Friday to uh, cheer them on, that's a, that's a good, loud, vocal group of people. And if they punch Lindenwood in the mouth, figuratively speaking, a couple of times, sit them back on their heels, uh, you know, something could happen. I'm not seeing a few thousand at the game on a Friday. And Lindenwood is coached by Ron Leshevsky, who knows how to win. And, and you know, he, he was a great player and, and he's a great coach. They have this black guy in the wing whose name I don't know, but Ron put a thing on Facebook and I saw this guy. He could move. Just knowing Ron, and that that's all I'm going on, there's nobody stopping Lindenwood. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm picking Lindenwood. I'm just, I'm <laughs> saying that. I'm just saying that if somebody can beat him, Utah Valley might have the right mix of, of things in their bag to do it. But I'm definitely picking Lindenwood. So the the promise is two great games. They're going to be very close. I think Utah Valley will push them close. I think that there's there's something to be said for emotion and uh, and taking your opportunities. But yeah, it looks like points and bet you a beer. How many points? Ten and a half. Said it's going to be uh, I, I better not. Plus a half. Ten, ten and a half, ten and a half points on. I'm giving you ten and each a half game. On Lind- I take Lindenwood. What okay. was the Ireland USA game in the cup, the World Cup? Twenty-two ten. Give me that spread, and I'll take it. Give me twelve and a half. Fair done. All right. All right, I'll take that too. Twelve and a half. Uh, but it looks like Lindenwood and Salisbury slated for the final on Saturday. Uh, D1 AA, and and this. Oh, by the way, I was taking Towson in the other game because they won twice. Salisbury won twice, and I think it's tough to beat a team three times, especially when they're close games. I almost said, said that that's like an ultimate coaching cliche, but I guess I yeah. I didn't need to. Cause that's right. Really it's already been taken. Okay, okay, I'll put that in. Uh, D1 AA. Interesting matchups here, too. So we've got Tennessee against San Diego State, two former D1A or College Premier Division uh, teams going at it there, and uh, and two, you know, longtime teams that uh, – programs that have, uh, uh, you know, always been up there or close to it. Uh, San Diego State has been in the Final Four uh, of recent years, but a lot of player turnover since then. Matt Hawkins is their, uh, third, their third coach since that time. Uh, and they've they've seemed to win no matter what which coach is coaching them. And then on the other side, we've got Davenport, the uh, the other relatively new varsity program against Dartmouth, um, and and that's a great uh, juxtaposition of some e- enormously skilled and exciting players. Um, I, I actually like Dartmouth for this one. I like Dartmouth. I I think Madison Hughes is probably the m- most exciting freshman. In college rugby, I think Paul Jarvis is a terrific leader. I think Nate Brakely is is central to their efforts uh, in the air as a as a lock forward. He's an All American. He deserves to be. Um, I think they work really well together. I think they're well coached. I think they're grittier than you might expect from an Ivy League team. You know, might just sort of put them in a pigeonhole. I kind of like Dartmouth for this one over Davenport. 
I think J.P. Eloff is maybe the best college player in the country, regardless of division. He's definitely the best fly half in the country. Um, I think Ryan Hargraves, while he's not an eagle because he just doesn't have the size to be an eagle, is an absolute stud at number seven for Davenport. Great ball winner, extremely high effort guy. Um, I think he's phenomenal. And I think Mason Baum is a potential eagle wing. I think he's really talented. Um, you also add in Davenport's got Demicus Beach. This guy is probably about six four, six five, two sixty ish. He plays in the second row, but spends a lot of the time uh, while Davenport's on offense waiting for the ball in the back line. And uh, he's not an easy guy to bring down when he actually gets it um, with some space to run. I don't know that they're going to be able to leverage that against Dartmouth. I have a feeling that Alex Magleby will know it's coming and, and find a way to, to get into him before he gets going. But uh, that's just one of the weapons they have. I think Dartmouth, um, I think these are probably the two best teams in the country, by the way, but uh, in D1AA. But I think it's going to be a very good game. I just, it's hard for me to pick against a team with J.P. Eloff because I think this kid can do so much damage in every facet of the game. I think he is just that good that it's hard for me to pick against a team with him on it. So I'm picking Davenport. I have to go with Davenport. I just think that um, I just think that Max has been away with sevens, and I think that he's been in two minds, and that Dartmouth will be a little bit disjointed, and you're not going to prepare you you prepare for a championship starting in February or whenever you get yourself going January, whenever it is. Um, I don't see, I don't see, you don't fix this. You don't, you don't just turn a team in a week. It's just, I don't think it happens. So I, I would have to go with Davenport in that game. All right. So we've got two for Davenport, one for Dartmouth. That's pretty good. Uh, San Diego state against Tennessee. Well, I, you know, I, honestly, I've seen San Diego state play 15s. I've never seen Tennessee play 15s. So it's hard for me to sit here and judge exactly how good Tennessee is. But I know that Florida is really good, and I know that um, you know Florida State's a pretty darn good team. And so for Tennessee to come out of that, that's impressive in and of itself. Um, and, and some of the kids that they've had playing the sevens are some big, strong, athletic kids at their position. So it's hard for me to make a pick. I do. I, I am going to pick San Diego State um, because I think Matt Hawkins has his guys playing. I mean, I think that there is probably not a team in the country that is playing as much for its coach or embodying, you know, personifying its coaches, um, you know, mentality on the field as much as San Diego state. And I think they kind of play with the chip on their shoulder, kind of like Kutztown plays. When you play those guys, you know, they're going to hit you hard because they just always seem to be pissed off. I think Jamie Kelm always seems to be pissed off. And so this guy, that's why he hits everybody so hard. I don't know <laughs> that I've ever seen the kid smile, but he could play. And, uh, you know, Matt Hawkins and Jamie Kelm, I know it's probably not a good enough reason, but I really like both of those guys. Matt is a coach, Jamie is a player, and Mike Shea is really good for them at number eight, too. So um, San Diego State is who I have to pick, but this is an unknown for me, so it's a bit like throwing a dart in the dark. Though I did have both. I did have San Diego State in the Final Four. I had Tennessee losing in the second round, so... Yeah, I guess I don't know. Well, the, well. you know, the, Tennessee is a bit of a surprise team. Uh, they always have good skilled players. There's always a question about whether they have the 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 depth and the power up front. Uh, that's that's been the issue. And, you know, they've always had somebody. You know, you point to say, "Oh, this guy's a good player. That guy's a good player." But what do they have to fill in there? I think they they really have good depth this year. They really have a bunch of players, and most of them. 
most of them are Tennessee products. They're just kids from Tennessee and, and the, the Tennessee youth program that's been going on there. These kids know how to play rugby. So, so what you've got is a bunch of kids who know how to play rugby, who played against each other and with each other for a very long time. They're well coached. Uh, they're in a program that's well supported. They should be in the final four based on that. And I do think you're right about San Diego State. San Diego State kind of feels like, in a way, nobody pays any attention to them. And they would like to come out and show what they can do, what Southern California can do. I agree with Alex on the fact that the Tennessee kids have had a relatively mature uh, high school program that has fed the Tennessee program. I think that, you know, I saw Sammy Anderson over the weekend and, and, and he is down at life playing on, on the Super League team and, and then Benji Goff is gone. And I, I think that they, they lost a little bit of their experience. And I think that that's going to be a big issue. And, you know, as Alex said last, last week, I think you just got to go with the West Coast team because the West Coast is better. So that's right. That's I'm, exactly what I said. I'm going to pick San Diego State because Alex says the West Coast. <laughs> and there we go. So I think I think we've got um, two for San Diego State, and I'm kind of on the fence. I think I'll take Tennessee. So I'll take Tennessee and Dartmouth. And uh, you two both will go with San Diego State and Davenport. Okay, so we're coming to our. We're going to be right back. We have one more topic, and then we're going to uh, wrap up the show. But we do have kind of a provocative topic. So uh, uh, you stick around on Rugby Matrix America. Hey, fans, go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs. Whether you're kitting out your team with our American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots, Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. Hi, this is Colton Cariaga of Life University, and we will be competing in the USA 7s Collegiate Rugby Championship held at PPL Park in Philadelphia on June 2nd and 3rd. For tickets, go to usa7crc.com. Or if you want to support Life University, go to liferunningeagles.com. We hope to see you there. Okay, we're back on the show. This is Alex Goff with Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean. Uh, we already know that several teams are going to be pulling out of D1A for next year. Most of the South, where which produced life in Arkansas State, well, they're they're losing Oklahoma and Notre Dame and Texas A&M. We're also expecting UC Davis probably to go, quite possibly Navy to drop out. Um, is this the end of D1A? I mean, I, my my. What I've said before, what I said when it was formed was 31 teams was too many. And I said I expected for this season, this 2012, that we would drop down to about 16. And then we'd probably drop down to about 8 or 12 the next year. If it were to survive, that's what it would end up being. But for it to survive, you'd also need a major sponsor. You need exposure. You need television or, or webcast of some kind to get enough money to actually help pay for travel for these guys. And right now that's not happening. And Pat, you've been talking to a lot of these teams that uh, dropped out. Uh, money was a, is a major factor, not necessarily losing games or being not competitive, although it might be for some, but money was a major factor. Well, I, I, 
I, I think that the biggest issue really isn't the overall number of teams. It's it's the number of teams in a certain area, and that's the Mid South. And why some of these te- why there are so few now? Um, I think it's partially because of money, and I also think it's definitely partially because of the competitive nature of that league. I mean, if A and M was losing to Life and Arkansas State by five points each, uh, I think you'd see them stay. They would have found a way to stay in the league. Uh, now that's just you know guessing on my part. Um, but you can't blame them for the amount of travel that they're having to spend. And their coach said that they're, you know, they were looking at like $2,000 a kid on the kid's back each year to play. And that's an awful lot though. If you compare it to, you know, fraternity dues, it probably compares favorably for what you're getting out of it. But, um, that's not the point. Uh, I, I think that the biggest issue for this thing sticking together is the mid South. And, uh, it's that you only got essentially two teams left. There is life in Arkansas state. And how do you make that work? Can you make it work with three conferences? Perhaps, but the Rugby East doesn't want to absorb, or depending on which coach you talk to, the Rugby East really doesn't want to absorb life in Arkansas State because, A, the travel is going to jump up quite a bit. There are other excuses or reasons some of the other coaches use, such as academic standards or whatnot, but the biggest one they use is is travel. Um, It's just how do you get that fourth conference, and what do you do with Arkansas State in life? You can't have them just play each other and give them a bid straight to the playoffs. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you add in a team there, be it Lindenwood, that's probably the only realistic option to add down there. That's still only a three-team league. So how do you make that league work? That's the biggest part of it. And uh, you know, if you have a D1A that doesn't have Cal, that doesn't have Arkansas State, and doesn't have life, what the heck is the point of having a D1A? Because you're not crowning a champion and uh, you're leaving the three of your most well-funded, most well-run programs in the entire country out of it. So the biggest issue for D1A is not anything other than how do you deal with the Mid-South? And I don't think money is necessarily the number one factor because I do believe, I think that it's also the conference realignment that Tennessee and LSU left, not just because uh, the SEC uh, conference opportunity was there, and it has worked out great for everybody in that conference. I think um, even some of the lower-level teams will tell you that they've enjoyed the experience. But because of competitive nature, because, again, if Tennessee and LSU were losing by two points to life in Arkansas State, that they probably would have found a way to stick in it. So I think that it's it's a combination of things, but we can't just say it's all money, and a big sponsor is not going to fix it because a big sponsor is not going to get teams to agree to play in the Mid-South against life, Arkansas State, and Lindenwood. Yeah, but a big a big sponsor could have fixed it a year and a half ago. Yeah, a big, a big yeah. sponsor could have come in and, and and the model would have been put there and it would have been all right. The um, the it it's the tr- it's the mid south. It's it's the isolation of those those teams. They really don't have anybody near them, and that's why they wanted to be in the D one A to to start with. So so if they're isolated, yeah, doesn't it, doesn't it all implode then? Doesn't don't don't the guys in the mid mid Atlantic look around and say, didn't we have the Mid Atlantic Premier League three years ago, and wasn't that great? And why don't we go back and do that? And then we've already talked to Jack Clark about his thoughts about the Pac-12. What what if the Pac-12 does, uh, you know, bloom out out of all of this? What what if what if Cal and and Arizona and Arizona State and UCLA and Utah invite in an outside as they do in other sports like BYU, and they say this is Pac-12. That's what our conference is. You suddenly have two amazing conferences on either side of the the country. Doesn't this splinter the entire game? Isn't that a? I don't even want to use the word danger because I'm not going to judge it. Isn't that a possibility that the whole thing splinters now because people look around and and 
and say it's it's just not working. No. I don't think coaches, programs, and teams have the balls to say, we're just going to play our Pac-12 season, play whatever friendlies that we want to play. We'll play the St. Mary's and the friendlies and whatever, and we won't play to a national championship. I think that you saw this year that that's the case because Cal wanted desperately to get back in and play in the D1AA for a national championship. They weren't allowed to. And I think that if you're if you don't think that that really ruffled the feathers and it created a huge problem at Cal, then I, I think you're you're probably underestimating what it did because there's a lot of player dissent. There are guys that are not happy about what happened up there who play for for Cal um, based on conversations I've had uh, because of that whole situation. Teams have to play for a national championship. Kids want to win them. All right, people want to win championships. I don't think people are going to start. They can talk about it all they want. But I don't think people are going to pull out of a chance to win a national championship. Anymore. All right, so. but but they're not going to they're not going to choose. But but something splinters. We've already got it splintered, right? It's it's already not happening. You know, it's it's not so much a national championship as two different divisions, and the the highest profile team is not in it, not in either of them. Yeah, yeah, but so I don't think anybody. It's split. It is splintering to some degree, but. I don't think anybody's arguing that the D1A is better than D1AA. Everybody knows that, right? Nobody's sitting here saying any different, and I would think that that would be a silly argument to make anyways. So the kids that are winning D1A know what they're winning that level of competition. The guys that are winning D1AA know they're winning the national championship at that level of competition. I don't think it's like you've got three different champions and you know the AP, the the coaches, and you've got three different national champions like you used to have in football. I don't think it's like that. I see what you're going to see happen is – Every team that can is going to recede back to Division One AA, and they're going to get in the conference they get into, and they're going to play for that national championship. And eventually, I see college rugby being moved outside of the offices of USA Rugby because they're going to realize we have these independently run conferences. We don't need TUs that are you know supported by the USA Rugby. There's no governmental structure keeping us in. If we could just get five of these conferences or six of these conferences, We'll go create our own national championship. I think that's what's eventually going to happen, not necessarily the Pac-12 playing the Pac-12 and the winner of the Pac-12 is going to play the winner of uh, the Allied Rugby Conference. What I think is going to happen is everybody's going to leave or most the wholesale teams are going to leave all at once. But at first, they're going to recede back to Division One AA. That's what I see happening at first. Right. And now there's right. a lot of okay, ripple but, effect. But, but, but for next year, it's going to be what? We don't, we don't know. It, it is – the D1A is kind of being pe- taken apart, not in an even way where suddenly we're down to everybody has four in a conference. As you said, it's there's there are two teams in the South. We don't know what to do with the South. We don't know. We okay. So what, what about Cal? Is Cal in D1AA next year? Most likely, right? Are they are they competing for a national championship? They have every right to do that. So they they want to do that now. Might they, might they put in all freshmen and sophomore and compete that way and have an independent schedule for their seniors? I don't know. They might want to do that, and and concept, but but there are people who want you know, there are people who want to think about conference only play. I'm not saying throw out national championship. I'm not saying don't play for one. I'm saying there are people who are thinking about that, and then there are people who are thinking about this national league and thinking about or and and people like me saying, well, it probably should have been twelve teams to start with anyway. And if we, we could have marketed that and made that work, or maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe it would have fallen on its face. I don't know. But the thing is, it's right now, you've, you've just thrown, I don't know, all these things into a bowl 
and you don't even know whether you're making one thing or two or three or if it's going to taste horrible. No, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I, I think that the one big success, and there's been a lot of change the last three years. You look at the D1A, the conference structure, this, that, and the other. I think the one thing that has proven to be successful is the conference system. And I think that its attractiveness is a large part of the reason why you're seeing this problem with D1A. And I think that that is the one thing that's proven to actually work for a lot of teams. Now, it's not worked for some other teams, but for the most majority of people involved in it, it has worked. And so you're going to see a lot of these D1A teams recede back to that. And if you ask me, is there a D1A next year? I don't think there is. And if there is, it's not going to be sustainable because there had to be some serious concessions made and some people very, very unhappy to where it's going to be a Band-Aid thing and it's going to fall apart the year thereafter. There just isn't enough teams in the Mid-South or in the Southeast part of the country to make it work. Um, so it, it, I just – I don't see it, and I don't see people um, you know, putting more emphasis on conference play. And that those that say they're going to put more emphasis on conference play than winning a national championship are the teams that don't honestly have a chance to win a national championship once these D1A teams come back. Aren't they? I think mostly, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the you know the wild card is Cal, who seems to you know Jack Clark seems to talk about caring about conference play more than a national championship. Whether whether you you know buy that or not, it's just uh, they're they're pushing for a different a different viewpoint. Um, I I don't think that D one A can survive the way it's going right now. But how how does it fall apart? Does it fall apart all at once, or does it just sort of dribble away? Until D1A is, um, you know, six teams playing each other, and that's it. Yeah, I think it crumbles this year. I don't think that there's the will, uh, a, a, a giant will from people to even five or six teams to keep it together. Okay. It's so then, the Super then, then what? Then what happens on D1AA? What happens to the teams that are in D1AA and are now suddenly playing all these programs that were in the D1A in the top level? They, well, what happens they, is a they, lot of these conferences probably just exclude those D1A teams from joining their leagues anyways, right? So the ACRL is not going to let Life University and Arkansas State in. They never were going to. They're not going to now. So a lot of these conferences that have the minimum of seven teams to get their automatic bid are just going to shut their doors to these D1A teams that are coming back. So that leaves the D1A teams to try and form their own conferences. Some are going to find it easier than others. Um, and then eventually, uh, I think you're going to see more than 16 conferences get bids or, or I mean 16 conferences meet the minimum requirements by USA rugby to get automatic qualifying bids. And if that happens, you have to either expand the playoffs, have play in games, which is essentially expanding the playoffs or make the, uh, the automatic qualifying uh, regulations more stringent. And, and none of those options is going to be popular, but it's something that's going to have to be done. So, I mean, there's obviously big ripple effects and probably a lot of ones that I'm not thinking of. I think it affects Seven season because all of a sudden now if Huge Army thing, and huh? yeah if that Mid Atlantic group that you talked about is now playing um, if they don't have to adhere to a spring CPD or D1A season they're going to go back to playing in the fall which they all want to do now are they going to play sevens does that hurt the viability of a, a fall sevens national championship I think it potentially does and I think it also hurts the All Americans because now you don't have a league of all the best or perceived to be best teams in the country having to mandatorily submit video or put it in a central location for somebody to scout. And you can't just go to the D1A playoffs and say, well, I'm probably going to get the cream of the crop by going to that. Now you're spreading out the scouting process. 
And uh, I think there are a lot of ripple effects, but uh, and, and we'll only truly see how bad they are or how effective they are until it happens. I think D1A is great. I think well, D1A I think, is I think D1A is awesome. USA Rugby gave D1A two hundred and fifty grand. I don't know what they did with it. But they gave them two hundred and fifty grand, which is more than they would get from any sponsor at this point. And you know, if teams want to leave, let them leave. What do you do with the Mid South then, Bruce? What do you do? You guys sound like, Henry, you sound like Henry Clay and John Calhoun. Uh, what do we do? What with would the you South? do? I'm just. I don't know exactly. I don't have this. I'm not the one making this master plan, but I think that if you have a group of teams that say, "Hey, we're in this, and we want to be in it," then they'll figure out a way to make it work. I think there's and this whole thing of saying like. You know, D1 double D1 AA is Division 2. Let's just call it that. Division 2 is Division 3. Let's just call it that. And and then we can say, now, call it Division 2 and then see how it all goes down. You know, don't call it Division 1 AA. Call it Division 2. And and that's what they should have done initially. And call Division 2 Division 3. Because that's what it is. And yeah. we... We you know, because the the small college, the small green. college association is just those are semantic. Those are semantics. Yeah. And then you say, okay, if everybody wants to drop to Division Two, and the ACRL doesn't want to let people in, and these, hey, fine. I, I, everybody's fair to do what they want to do. But I think a a lot of the teams leaving, as you said, Pat, the teams leaving are leaving because they're losing. They're not leaving because of anything else, but they're losing. If they were spending the money and they were winning, it'd be okay. But they're spending the money and they're losing. So it's not okay. And they do have just reasons, I mean, for the benefits, right? Because I'm not – there's no reason to villainize the ACRL or the SEC because I'm a huge fan of both things. I think that for a lot of those schools, the best thing that they could possibly do in terms of getting better support administratively, getting better fields, getting better players on their campus to play is to play in these leagues. Tennessee is going to get better players to play now that they're in the SEC, in my opinion, the, the guys that they're just finding on campus, than they were elsewhere, or they would otherwise, even if they were in D1A. And I think there's a lot of benefits to that. But you're right. If Tennessee, and I guess I'm right too because I was saying it, but if Tennessee was you know, challenging for a D1A quarterfinal every year, they wouldn't have left. They would have found a way to make it work. That's my point. There's always going to be some kind of a pain and some kind of growing pains in it. And and people, I think that where the colleges have to understand is they need to work in partnership with each other as opposed to in an adversarial relationship. And I think that when the coaches and administrators of the local, of the colleges start to understand that better, they'll have a better thing going on. Right now, I, everybody's kind of looking in almost – you know, what's in it for me as opposed to what's best for rugby. And that's You're hundred percent right. Uh, that's going to wrap it up. I think we've covered an awful lot and, and hold us to these uh, predictions, but keep, keep an eye out that the key thing about all these predictions that we put out is that we split on most of them. So somebody among us is going to be right. And that's the most important thing uh, for Pat Clifton. It's usually Pat who's right. That's true. That's true. Pat's on a roll. For Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean, this is Alex Goff. Thanking you for listening to Rugga Matrix America. Yeah.